according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 24. We have now crossed into Proverbs 24. There are, after today, there are only three remaining Proverbs classes, because there's no Proverbs next week, so um, no Proverbs on Wednesday the 8th, but we will have on the 15th, the 22nd, and the 29th of December. So three more Wednesdays after this one, which is not possible then to get to the end of chapter 24. I didn't think it would be, but um, anyway, God's in charge of that too. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. We're currently looking at verses 3 and 4 where we left off last week about building our house, our spiritual house. And uh, we want to take this morning to remind ourselves of the house that Jesus is building or that he has built as it's portrayed in the, uh, the seven pillars uh, that's spoken of in Proverbs chapter 9. So we'll get back to that this morning as well. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and his faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, who are we that we should enter into your counsel? And yet you invite us here and you freely give us the the truth from your word and your spirit, Father, indwells us and opens our eyes and teaches us all of these abundant blessings beyond anything that we could ask or think. So we thank you and praise you and we want to uh, redeem this time now that's set before us uh, for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So dealing with where we left off last week, let me advance our slideshow here. Words of the Wise number 19 is another message on envy. In fact, it's the middle out of three messages on envy. (coughs) Words of the Wise number 13 dealt with it back in chapter 23. This one here is the second of those three in uh, verses 1 and 2. And we've got another one coming up. The third one in this chapter is uh, down in verses 19 and 20. In fact, it's the penultimate words of the wise. There's 30 of these sayings in the, in the words of the wise portion that we're dealing with. And in the penultimate one, the second to last one, is uh, number 29, is another look at envy. We talked about Kana and Kana last week, the difference between envying and acquiring uh, acquiring when you can't acquire, when you want to acquire, and then you envy uh, is kind of a nice play on words between the two different kinds of kana that you look at there in the Hebrew. But moving on to words of the wise number 20, where we were last week and then ran out of time. Words of the wise number 20, believers should build a house in wisdom even as wisdom herself has built her house. 
And so we have a pattern that's made for it. You might think of this, uh, for example, when Moses was given the instructions to build the tabernacle, he was told specifically that as you build this tabernacle and the plans that you have, that these plans that I'm giving you are patterned after a heavenly reality, that there is a temple or a tabernacle in heaven and uh, that that heavenly temple has a has a, a, based upon that pattern then Moses was going to build the tabernacle there in the wilderness. Well think of that as, a, as analogous to what we're looking at here this morning. We are expected to build our house. We are expected to build our spiritual house. And we do so through the, the study of the Word of God and the, and the fear of the Lord and the, the passing on from one generation to next, the fear of the Lord heritage that we're given in Christ. And so as we're living in the Word of God, as we're building our spiritual house, just like Moses, there is a prototype, there is a pattern that has been set. There is a heavenly reality that we can look to whereby then we can pattern our house after. And so that becomes, I think, an important consideration as well. So when we're looking at Proverbs 24 verses 3 and 4 Proverbs 24 verses 3 and 4 and I should have set this up earlier, sorry about that. Float this panel. There we go. That's what I'm missing. My little mouse is gone. Where did I put it? (laughs) Still trying to figure out the new pulpit. Trying to decide if I like the Bible there, if I want to slide the Bible over towards the center. I think I'm going to leave it like this. We'll just play with a few different configurations until I get comfortable with what we're doing. All right. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And so we understand just by virtue of the tools involved, by virtue of the mechanisms, right, the, the means by which this house is built, that it, we're not talking about a physical house. We're not talking in physical life of a, of a structure that you might, you know, a tent or a house or a, a condo or an RV or whatever it is that you're sleeping in at night. We're not talking in the physical realm here. Because we're talking about wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. That these are the the instruments of your building. And the house is not only built, but it's also established. That means it's fixed, securely grounded. It is stabilized. So it is built, it is stabilized. And it is then filled. The rooms of that house are then filled. And so we have the metaphor to communicate this, and we understand that wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, these are terms that we have repeatedly throughout the book of, of Proverbs, and so it's a vocabulary that's, that's very familiar to us. And we, we recognize that the process for doing this, the process for building this house, is abiding in the Word of God, living in the Word of God. The very study that we're doing presently on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights as we're getting ready for the Through the Bible series, that we have to be living in the Word of God so as to obtain the wisdom, the understanding, and the knowledge, every facet of doctrine that's available for us in the Word of God. And so the, uh, the activity there, I think, is pretty straightforward. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are what does the building. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are what builds, establishes, and fills the rooms of our spiritual house. 
This is our spiritual house. And this is, this is what the Bible presents as a metaphor. And I know other pastors through the years have really taken this concept and really expanded it out in, in very intricate ways. Uh, for example, the, the edification complex of the soul, for example, that Pastor Theme developed. And, and, or the uh, palace, palace wonderful, uh, that uh, Clarence Larkin presented. And other pastors have done similar things as well in describing uh, the, the, the houses that we can build for ourselves as we live in the Word of God, as we structure uh, our very souls being built upon the, uh, the truth. Understand, of course, that only the Lord can do this, that we can present ourselves before Him as workmen, but He's the one that's doing the work. Remember, it's the Father who's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So the blessing we have as we present ourselves before Him is making ourselves available for Him to do the work. We plant, we water, but God's the one that causes the growth. And so we, we allow Him to do this and we recognize that apart from His involvement it is a vain endeavor. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And so Anything that we do through human effort, anything we do in the flesh, anything we do out of the will of God, okay, keep in mind that, that in order for us to be fellow workers with God in, in the edification process of Christian growth, it means we've got to be in fellowship. It means we have to be doing it His way, in His terms, on His schedule, in His, uh, in his work. And uh, as long as we don't keep the, as long as we keep the things on track, I think in that way we do well. The uh, tendency, though, is for people to get their eyes off the Lord, get their eyes on self, and then get full of themselves and very impressed with what they're doing. And uh, this is a crowd that is going to stand before the Lord at, at the great white throne and say, "Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that. I had a whole laundry list of things that I did for you. Uh, why am I here at the great white throne judgment?" on the way to the lake of fire. You know, there must be some mistake because I've done all this for you. I'm a very religious person. That's the, that's the message that the Lord Lord crowd is, is communicating there. And uh, keep in mind that by the time anybody stands before the great white throne, they've already been in hell for whatever length of time after their physical death. They've already lived their life. They've already had their physical death. They've already died and gone to hell. And by the time they get to be resurrected out of hell, in the resurrection of judgment, to stand before the great white throne, they've already been in hell for whatever length of time, and they're still making excuses. They're still living in denial. They're still um, alleging that somehow they've earned and deserved something, and that God is somehow wrong for His judgment. And so when, they, when they're crying out, Lord, Lord, they're, they're doing so as a rebuke, as if God can possibly make a mistake. And so this, I think, comes back to what we're looking at here related to unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain who build it. Anything that we're doing apart from what God's doing is human viewpoint. It's human good. It's, it's fruitless. It's wood, hand, stubble. It's going to go up in flames. At, for us as believers, it's going to go up in flames at the, uh, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And for the unbeliever, they're just piling up additional works that they're going to answer for at the great white throne. All right, because those those deeds are going to be evaluated, and every good deed they thought was going to count for something is going to actually count against them, because it was in defiance of the will of the Father, and it was in defiance of the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a part of their eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So, that's uh, that's an incredible consideration as well. 
Every husband and helpmate has a household to keep, keeping the way of the Lord. And, and so when we're building a house, keep in mind that this is that we can view the metaphor of a house, we can view the imagery of a house, we can view Ed, can you get that door please? The um, nope, too slow. <laughs> All right. We've got to get better on our signals. The metaphor of the house, we can think of it as the spiritual house of our soul, but we also can recognize the heritage that the house is. That the house represents the family, the house represents the descendants, the legacy, the children, the grandchildren, and the generations beyond. And so as we build a house in that way, uh, we're beyond constructing a, a, a teaching metaphor, beyond uh, constructing a, a model of a uh, of, a, of a soul structure, um, there is actually the, the the real common biblical usage of house that represents our our household, that represents our our family and extended family, and the the legacy that that follows us after we're after we're gone. And so, the example that's given here in Genesis eighteen nineteen, when the Lord is speaking about Abraham. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Now Abraham is unique in the sense of the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, but he is not unique in the sense that every husband and wife, every generation is expected to bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. All right, And so we can take a passage like this and we can see the uniqueness of Abraham, but we can also see the the um, the universal application that's made on the part of every generation. So commanding his children and his household after him. This is the house, the spiritual house that we build. Okay, the heritage that we build, regardless of whether we have uh, you know the the square footage of the of the physical structure that we leave behind. The household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So every generation has this as a, as a, a duty and a responsibility. Of course, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. The man alone can't pass on that heritage to the next generation beyond just the biology of it. <laughs> okay, Obviously, it takes a woman to birth the child. But then beyond that, in the in the raising of the next generation. It takes both the father and the mother to instill these values and to establish that pattern and to portray by example what it is that, that um, sacrificial love and leadership and the submission, the sacrificial love in, in submission. How does that work? How do the husband and the wife model that? Because they're modeling the father and the son as they model that, see? And the children need that in the next generation. All right. Because the day will come that they're going to leave and they're going to take, they're going to leave father and mother and they're going to cling to one another and the two will become one flesh. And it just carries from generation to generation. And this is what we're passing on, this legacy that we're passing on, keeping the way of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently. This takes effort. This takes um, diligence, right? 
Teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, there is a place for the academics, there's a place for the formal education, there's a place for the formal instruction, but then there's the instruction that happens in life. There's the instruction that happens as you go about your daily business, your family business. Uh, it's, it's nonstop. It's around the clock. And so as you conduct your life, as you raise these children, they see, they receive this instruction because you're always talking spiritual values. Even when you're doing earthly things, you're still speaking spiritual values. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have these written reminders everywhere. <laughs> to have little notes and little ways just to remind yourself. Constantly have Scripture in front of you so that Scripture is always on your mind. Everywhere you look and you're seeing Scripture. There's a benefit to that. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Maybe one of the most famous verses because you have it on your your knickknacks around the house, or your, your, your welcome mat on the front porch, or whatever. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? But you have to make that choice. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. If it is disagreeable, and that's a very present reality, and any believer has to stop and recognize, why is this disagreeable? It should be agreeable. But why, why would it be disagreeable? Through carnality, through worldly thinking, with the sins and the encumbrances that so easily entangle us? And it can be to the point where, where we get so wrapped up in our bios life, in our, in our earthly life, with our careers and raising the kids and all the bills and all of the chaos, all the politics, all the... I mean, believers can get so wrapped up in bios life that serving the Lord is actually disagreeable. I don't have time for that. It's, it's, it's an inconvenience. It's, I got too much else to do. Well then, choose for yourself whom you're serving, okay? Because there's, you're serving a false god is who you're serving. So might as well just put a name on it and, and bow down. So whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, you know, the background that Abraham had before he was called, before he uh, obeyed the Lord and went to the land of promise, the, uh, when he was in Ur of the Chaldees and all of the... And it's kind of a testimony that in between Noah and Abraham, for those generations in between there, they served false gods. They were idol worshipers. The gods that your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. So when he went to the land of promise, he had those Canaanites that were living there. The ones that are going to get wiped out in Joshua's conquest. Okay? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Me and my house, okay? And this is where every household, every house, every, every unit, right? You've got to decide what kind of house is this, right? Well, this is a Christian home. So there are things that we do and things that we don't do. And we, have, we go to church. We're, we're a church, we're a Christian home. We're, we are members of a local church, Okay? And we have other practices that we do. And, and it's, you know, that's between you and your house. That's between the husband and the wife and how they raise their family. And the issues there. All right. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We saw this not as, a, not as an absolute promise, but as a principle. 
as the Proverbs present principles for the normal routines, for the normal operations of the Word of God, that when you ground a child from the youngest of ages in Bible doctrine, there is lifelong benefit in that. That even when he is old, that there is a fruit that still bears fruit decades later because of the grounding that takes place in the, uh, the young life of that child. We can appreciate that. That's part of passing on a godly legacy. This is so you understand what we're dealing with here is, is not just the world would view the idea of a legacy based upon, you know, somebody that was famous, somebody that was rich, somebody that um, donated a lot of funds, they were a patron of the arts, or they had other, uh, they were um, patrons of, of different endeavors, they were supporters of the symphony, or they did whatever, and, and they get their name uh, recorded, and it's on a plaque, or it's on a wall, or, or maybe they get a park named after them, or they get a, a bridge named after them, or, or whatever. People get all excited about what they can put their name on. And they're just putting their name on something earthly that's going to burn up when this whole world burns up. The real house that we're, we should be building, the real estate that we should be leaving behind is the legacy of Bible doctrine that impacts our children, our grandchildren, and, and, and on to generations we'll never see. Okay, That's why in Ephesians 6, 4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. These are the Greek equivalents of what the Hebrew talks about in in the book of Proverbs. The Musar instruction here is the paideia, the disciplined instruction. It means that you're not your your child's friend, you're the the discipline, you're the enforcer, you're the the loving parent that, that sets the boundaries and enforces the standards. And the application's there. All right. Now, how do we do this if, if we don't have children? <laughs> how do we do this if, if we're not married? You, know, you still have a generation that you partake in. You are still in your generation. And so you end up then supporting others to raise those children. You still influence the younger generation even if they're not biologically yours. You still have the fruit to bear. You still have, especially in the body of Christ, where we have the, the, the ministry and the blessings to serve one another, and, and absolutely you have uh, fruit bearing in that regard. All right. I think the best pattern we can look at is the um, example of Jesus Christ in the house that he builds in the metaphor that's presented in Proverbs chapter 9. We did teach this already in the parental wisdom section of Proverbs, and so we have these notes that are available to us. But if we do take the time to look at Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and we have the personification of wisdom, where wisdom is more than uh, simply an attribute of God. God is wise, He has wisdom. God is righteous, He has righteousness. We can, we can describe the essence box and we can, we can uh, take all of the Scripture's description of God Himself and we need to. We need to identify the nature of God. So He is all-wise. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Uh, he is, um, is all-good. We have all the, the essence box of God. Righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, veracity, faithfulness. You have the whole essence box of God. And you have those attributes. What's curious though is the way wisdom gets presented in the book of Proverbs, 
whereby wisdom actually is described in a personal way where through the device of, uh, of, of metaphor, through the device of personification, we can communicate truth. And we have to understand what is being communicated and not get lost in the metaphor not, not, and, and not dismiss it as if, well, it's just, a, it's just a personification, it's just a way of describing God's wisdom. It is more than a way of describing God's wisdom. Because there's scads of passages that describe God's wisdom without personifying wisdom, right? There's scads of ways that personify God's power without personifying power, or ways that, pers- that describe God's glory without personifying glory. You see, that, you see what I'm talking about? So the personification of glory, for example, is the, the Shekinah, the presence, the, the glory that enters into the temple, the personification of... There, there's a lot of things that never get personified. Okay? But the personification of wisdom specifically is Jesus Christ. It specifically is God the Son. It is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what, what Proverbs calls wisdom personified, the Gospel of John calls the logos, the Word. What Hebrews calls is the, the manifestation of His glory. So we have wisdom personified in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. We start to see what wisdom does when wisdom builds her house. And we realize that's the heavenly pattern. This is what we need to do when we build our house. Okay? So we want to start with pillars. We want to make sure it's stable. We want to be preparing food. We want to be mixing wine. All the things that wisdom's doing in preparing her house, we want to be doing in preparing our house. Setting a table, sending out maidens, calling. And this is in a gracious invitation that our house is a place where others are welcome to come and join us in uh, worshiping God and studying of the word and partaking of the food. Okay? So preparing food means this is, this is the meal that we're going to be partaking in. And, and obviously in the metaphor, what's the food? It's, the, it's Bible doctrine. It's the, the, the word that we're studying. Likewise with the wine, the drink that we're partaking of. It's for enjoyment. It's for relaxation. Setting the table, sending out maidens, calling from the tops of the heights of the city. How far do we want our, our testimony to reach? Do we, and you know, some Christians are so top secret about the Christianity, nobody knows they're even saved. <laughs> Send out the invitation. Let whosoever will may come. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food, drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live, and proceed in the way of understanding. So when we taught this, back in chapter 9, and I'm forgetting even when this was. Let me start with don't do that. Austin Bible Church. There we go. Proverbs. Parental wisdom, 
chapter 9. All right, 2016. April, May, and June of 2016. All right, so that was five years ago. You can be excused for forgetting some of this stuff. (laughs) All right, I can be excused for forgetting some of this stuff. So you want to keep it fresh. All right. So these are the notes that we went through as we were studying it. Chapter 9 recaps and concludes the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. It serves as the capstone for chapters 1 through 9. Because when we get to chapter 10, there's a whole new transition that takes place. We're going from childhood to adult capacity uh, from chapter 10 and onward. So wisdom and folly are contrasted. The scoffing scoffer is also spotlighted. Wisdom's seven-pillared house illustrates the delight Jesus has for the sons of men and in preparing dwelling places for them. Keep in mind, Jesus has always been a builder, right? He was a carpenter in his earthly life, but he's created the universe before that. uh, He says, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. So it shouldn't shock us then that when we find out that wisdom has built her house, well, it's a natural activity for Jesus Christ. He's, uh, he's always been a builder. And then we have a um, sevenfold description from chapter 8, you might recall. Let me put these side by side as well. Just so we can see them side by side. Dock this panel. There we go. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine. Sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. So we have a a sevenfold description of wisdom with prudence, knowledge, discretion, fear of the Lord, counsel, sound judgment, understanding, and power. That sevenfold description, very frequently uh, scholars are going to look to that and say, it kind of seems like those are going to be the pillars if there's seven pillars in wisdom's house, okay? If that's the case, all right, it's consistent. It is personified wisdom. It's, it's just one chapter away from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Um, I kind of like it. I can't prove it, but it's, it's nice, <laughs> okay? There's a sevenfold description of wisdom there, and there's seven pillars here. Okay, I can go with that. Likewise, there's seven spirits that are mentioned in Isaiah, the seven spirits of, the, of, uh, of God, as it says there. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so there's a sevenfold description there. Sometimes that gets connected to these seven pillars. There's also a sevenfold description from James in James 3.17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then reasonable, then full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And so you have a description there, all right? I think it's probably a, a, a useful study to contrast the, the fruit of the Spirit on the one hand with the description of the wisdom from above here, and to see if it's the Holy Spirit that's emphasized with the fruit of the Spirit, it's Jesus Christ that's emphasized here. Because don't forget, who's the wisdom from above? It's Jesus Christ. All right, then there's other theories related to why are there seven pillars there. We talked about pillars in different ways. 
All right. Wisdom's invitation is a grace invitation. The purpose for building a house is so that you can, you can host, you can be hospitable. You can have people uh, join you in your house for the blessings that come in that house. And so there's the invitation here that wisdom offers. And wisdom's invitation is a grace invitation. Proverbs 9, verses 4 through 6. Whosoever, turn in here. He who lacks, come, eat. Okay, This is a place where deficiencies can be remedied, where hunger can be satisfied, where ignorance can be uh, informed. <laughs> okay, In a Christian home, uh, answers can be provided for folks that are looking for those kind of answers. So the invitation must be volitionally accepted as the naive turns to enter wisdom's palace. Because remember, there's other invitations as well. There's a, there is a, uh, an adversary to Lady Wisdom. There is, uh, there is the woman of folly. There's another invitation that's being offered, and it's, uh, it's one of sin. It's one of pleasures. It's one of, of worldliness. The metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the volitional response of faith when the person accepts and receives divine provision. It's the same thing when you get saved. It's a metaphor of eating and drinking. If you're eating of the bread of life and drinking of the water of life, the, the metaphor of eating and drinking speaks to a faith reality. In this case, participating in the household blessings must be done by faith. The person accepts and, and receives the divine provision. Step one is to receive life, and step two is to proceed in the Word of God. So it says, forsake your folly and live. We, we might say today, come to the Lord, get saved. But then proceed in the way of understanding. It's not sufficient to just get saved. God has a plan for you that's more than just getting saved. You must then proceed in the way of understanding. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So step one is to receive life. Step two is to proceed in the Word of God. And we can see that here. We can see that in the Great Commission where the command is not just get people saved. The command is to make disciples. So that means unbelievers have to get the gospel and non-disciple believers need to be grounded in doctrine. They need to be absolutely taught how to abide in the Word of God. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 12, 1 Timothy 2, 4. So many uh, passages there that speak to the, uh, the principle that as we dwell in the Word of God, we're abiding in this, in this remarkable house. All right. So those were the notes that we had there on the house that wisdom builds. And if this is the house that wisdom builds, then it's the heavenly pattern for the house that we need to build. Float that back out. Good review on that. All right, that's the fast version. If you want the longer version, you can go get those off the website. Let's take a look now at verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 24, verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance he will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Again, we're dealing with metaphors. We're dealing with spiritual truth. It's speaking to spiritual life more so than physical life. 
We're not uh, claiming to be superheroes with physical strength. <laughs> if you think that uh, the Word of God will turn you into Samson, um, you're, you're misapplying the, the metaphor, right? You're misapplying the principle. If you want to mount up with wings like eagles and you want to run and not grow weary, you want to walk and not faint, you can do that. The Word of God will provide for you in that. But it's a spiritual truth related to the angelic conflict, related to our spiritual health in, uh, in the spiritual conflict, all right? So words of the wise, number 21. Spiritual strength for the angelic conflict comes through Bible doctrine in a community of fellow disciples. In a community of fellow disciples. You can't do this on your own. If you're sitting at home listening to a tape recorder, you are accumulating information and your soul is receiving gnosis. But without love... Knowledge puffs up and love edifies. I hope we're clear on that. All right? The lone wolf that thinks he can just become a, a walking Bible encyclopedia, or you can become a doctrinal uh, guru with because uh, you've memorized outlines from some pastor somewhere, and you've got all these doctrines and all these promises and all these principles, and you're just saturated with information. But you're not functioning in a body. And when you're not functioning in a body, then you are lacking that which every joint supplies. Because you're just a disembodied body part. And your disembodied body part is not linked together by the, the, the joints and the ligaments, the, 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 uh, the joints and the marrow. Okay, Because it's those connections that cause the proper working of each individual part. Without those connections, the individual part isn't working properly. So Proverbs 24, verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong. We got um, a progression here because there's two different words for strong, the poet and, and then the word for power. And it does the same thing in... Um, yeah, does the same thing in the Greek. Georgion, that's not a Greek word I'm familiar with. But Iskaros we are. All right. A wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power. Well, clearly we're not talking about physical strength. We're not talking about if you attend enough Bible classes, uh, you're going to turn into, you know, Lou Ferrigno or Arnold Schwarzenegger or some of these bodybuilders or whatnot. Okay? It's a spiritual strength. And I've known human beings that are fragile, that are very physically limited, very uh, uh, you know, infirm, very physically weak, and spiritually they're, they're giants. They're absolutely powerful in the Lord. They're powerful in the Word of God. Even though we all have this treasure in earthen vessels and, and uh, the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. And so the more perishing you've uh, experienced, um, it is what it is, Right? But the more uh, renewing that you've experienced, that is what it, that is. And so it's almost you know, like the opposite trajectory as the, as the body is going down, the, the soul is just ratcheting up like, uh, you know, like a launching rocket or something. It's just through the roof with the power. A wise man is strong, so we can appreciate that. But notice now, he's not by himself. Verse 6 is connected to verse 5. And notice, by wise guidance you will wage war. And so you're just one strong man. But your brother and, and your sister and your, your community of faith, for, for us it's the church age, for 
the uh, Old Testament believers, it was the congregation of the sons of Israel. Okay, The community of faith, the, the born-again believers that are positive to doctrine right there with you. They're growing with you in your synagogue or what have you. you know, put it back in an Old Testament context if you want to. Or just leave it you know, with us in, in current day. By wise guidance. And in abundance of counselors there is victory. Abundance of counselors. Now don't, uh, <laughs> don't abuse this text. Okay? This is not talking about psychobabble. This is not talking about um, you know, paying for you know, $120 a billable hour to, to lay on a couch and, and tell somebody your problems. That's not those kind of counselors. Okay? These are the counselors or the brothers and sisters that are growing right alongside with you and uh, the ones that will uh, tell you to, to shape up if you're, if you're stumbling, right? The counselors that will, that will uh, love you enough to tell you, you don't need to be headed down that path, okay? Quit making those dumb choices. Uh, get in the Word of God, stay in the Word of God, and, and make your faith decisions based upon the convictions that we all come to in the, in the study of truth. Those are your counselors. That's the wise guidance you receive. And your pastor is going to be part of it, but he's not the only one. You've got, you got fellow elders, you've got deacons, you've got brothers and sisters. We've got a whole community here of, of born-again believers that are growing together in these things. And uh, it may be that you're dealing with a test right now that's a test that your pastor has never faced, but this other brother over here has faced it. So go get his counsel. Go get his wisdom. Go get his guidance. Because that's what your pastor is going to do when it's his turn to go through that test. He's going to go get the, the, the uh, guidance and the counsel that, uh, that's available to him in the community of believers. The community of fellow disciples. Because you're not alone in this Christian walk. And yes, you can be strong, but you're still just one person. No matter how strong you are. There's a concept that we've uh, had earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs 11. And you take a look at this, chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 20, all of those Proverbs chapters are after childhood, right? It's after chapters 1 through 9. I keep stressing chapters 1 through 9 is the parental wisdom portion of the book where, where much of the emphasis is on the parents teaching the children and the, the wisdom that you learn as a child while you're still under your parents' roof, you're still under their protective spiritual umbrella, you're, still, um, you're learning the, the foundational principles of your life while you're still under the, uh, the, the protective grace of, of parents. So your stumbling can be limited, the ramifications can be limited. There's, there's such a, a protection that's, that's there. Once you step out, though, in your own generation and you stand before the Lord to either live wisdom or live folly, then the, the consequences are ramped up so much more severe. That's why you're better off getting the lessons learned early. Anyway, chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 20, these are all in the personal and public wisdom portion of the book. We're dealing with believers now that are standing in their own generational accountability before the Lord. So where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. And, and don't, don't ever feel like, uh, like you're beyond needing guidance in, uh, in any issue. Chapter 15, verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. See, no matter how strong you are, no matter how wise you are, no matter 
Um, if you think you got you got a handle on everything, and maybe you do. Maybe you are the wisest guy you know, and the and the strongest guy you know, and you've got better answers than anybody else you know. You're still not omniscient. You still don't know everything. You're still finite, and as wise as you are, there's still something that never crossed your mind. <laughs> there's still something that you never thought about. And you wouldn't have thought about it in a hundred years. But amazingly enough, a brother comes alongside and says, well, what about this? And then it dawns on you like, oh yeah, that's a lot smarter than what I was going to do. Why didn't I think of that? Okay, Because you're just one person. And God never designed us to be solo, right? He always designed us to be in a body, to be in a community. And, and the fact is, and even Trinity, I think this is fundamental to God's existence. God himself is the one true God. He is solo as a God. He is the I am. He is the one of which there is no other. But even God himself has the three persons of Trinity. He functions as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a community of relationship. And that's the design that he's vested in us to, to function in his image and to, to glorify Jesus Christ. So we can appreciate this. We're never solo. I mean, when are we ever solo? Ever. I mean, the first nine months of our existence are inside our mothers, so we're not solo there. <laughs> you know. And in order to be conceived and birthed, that required two people. All right? We're never solo it's not good for the man to be alone. Anyway, get consultation. Get your plans uh, successful instead of frustrated. Proverbs 20 and verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. You know, it seems that all the planning typically will have either a construction or a combat venue. <laughs> it seems it's either all about building something or killing something if in, in combat related to that. And, uh, you know, these are the realms of human endeavor, whether it's uh, construction or warfare, that, that does require significant planning. Or, or if it's done without plans, it's just doomed to fall apart. Jesus taught about this. Don't do that. Luke fourteen thirty one. As Jesus says, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. You know, if you're a king and you're, you're a fool, if, uh, you know, you know what your forces are, you know what his forces are, if you don't, now you're a double fool. But, if you, but knowing what the forces are, you've got to decide, is this, a, is this a battle we're going to win? Is this a battle we can win? Is this a battle that we're not likely to win? What, what are the conditions here? It's possible for 10,000 to beat 20,000, but what's it going to take to do that? What kind of ground you got to fight on? What, what kind of surprise do you need? What, what, uh, what are the terrain conditions like? What's the weather like? What's the, you know, if, if you're 10,000 going against 20,000, then you need to introduce some other components to this, uh, some other tactics to this battle, or it's not going to go well. How's this going to happen? So the point is you need consultation, you need plans, you need tactics, you need logistics, and everything else goes into that. And, and what's neat is that this is a, a universal truth and God himself 
abides by this uh, reality. God himself is engaged in a conflict, the angelic conflict against Satan. And he knows what needs to be done. And he knows the, the price that has to be paid is the death of his son to redeem humanity. And he knows the, the right field in which to, to wage that war and he knows all the, the correct timing with which to do this. All of these elements are involved and God himself demonstrates for us that you've got to be smart about what, you've got to have wisdom to engage in this. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I love that. That's a four to one ratio right there. If, uh, and if, if you've got a sin hang up and, and all you do is focus on the sin and say, this is, this is my besetting sin and all I do is sit around all day long, seven days a week dwelling on my sin. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I find that I'm just fixated on the thing I'm supposed to not be doing. Well, that very exercise has your eyes pointed the wrong direction because you're pointed towards the sin. Flee from youthful lusts. Evidently, maybe that was Timothy's struggle. Okay? Young man, he's looking at girls, I get that. But one item to flee from, four items to pursue. I like that. That tells me I should be spending four times the amount of time and energy and effort and focus pursuing righteousness, pursuing faith, pursuing agape love, pursuing peace. And if I'm pursuing all those things, I don't have time for this other foolishness, right? You know, because I'm, I'm, I'm focused on all this other stuff. And I like that. I like that ratio. And then the best part of all is the verse doesn't end with the word peace. The verse goes on to say, with with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, okay? Because you're not alone in this. You are a part of a community, a faith community, a a community of fellow disciples. Others along with you are living in the Word of God, and they're making their application. They can join with you in pursuing uh, faith, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So they're pursuing the same thing you're pursuing. Let's, Let's chase it together. And we run with endurance this race that's set before us and we can do this together. I appreciate that. There's a spiritual strength that comes with that. I like the connection of wisdom and power. Wisdom and power form a tandem in several passages. And I didn't realize until I started looking at this how frequently are wisdom and power linked together. And they're linked together several times in a general sense, but then sometimes in a personal sense. Again, with wisdom personified or with power personified. And you ask yourself, well, who is it that's wisdom and power? It's Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Indeed, Jews ask for a sign or signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. <laughs> okay? Religiosity and science and uh, all the world's uh, philosophy and all that, what the unbelieving Jews are looking for, what the unbelieving Gentiles are looking for, and what we have to offer. Okay? What a contrast. We preach Christ crucified. Aren't we foolish? Yes. 
but it's through the preaching of foolishness that eternal life is offered. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, when we're preaching Christ crucified, what are we preaching? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. I mean, to me, this is so conclusive. This is so overwhelming. This is so undeniable that if, if somebody tells me that wisdom personified cannot possibly be Jesus Christ, I look at this verse and I say, well, who else could it be? Who else could wisdom personified be if it's not Jesus Christ? Because here, obviously, the power of God and the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Likewise, in a personal sense, in Matthew 13, 54, he came to his own hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and this power? These miraculous powers. Okay? Jesus Christ came with wisdom and he came with power and the Pharisees couldn't deal with either of them. <laughs> you know? They hated the wisdom of what he was teaching and they, and they hated the, the miracles that he was producing because they couldn't deny him. They absolutely could not deny him. The, you know, the wisdom, as he's teaching doctrine, they could come along and say, well, that's not right, that's not right. They could, they could dispute it. They could, they could, um, they could pull rank they could um, they could appeal to uh, the the uh, the fallacy of authority. They could they could uh, draw on their credentials and say, "Well, this man's never been educated, right?" They could say, "Well, he he doesn't have that right." The problem was most of his doctrine was very compatible with the Pharisees' doctrine anyway. Uh, it's just he didn't have the legalism that they had that was hanging them up theologically. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to put the Pharisees on this hand and the, and the Sadducees on that hand, the doctrine that Jesus preached was much more compatible with, with the Pharisees, okay? Just without the legalism, <laughs> the pride and the arrogance and, and all of that. So as far as his wisdom goes, um, they might dispute what he had to say or they might nitpick or they might find, you know, they might uh, try to, uh, you know, quote a different scripture or try to contradict what he was saying. But there was nothing they could do about the power, about the miracles, about the, the works of power. I mean, that was just so obvious that he was sent from God and that they were testifying of his, of his uh, ministry, of his authority. So we have wisdom and power. Curiously enough, before I run out of time here, we'll come back, no, not next week, it's two weeks before we come back. Uh, Isaiah 10, 13. We'll just run through some of these. Because there's a claim here. Yeah, there's a claim here where people that are pursuing idolatry might think that they've done this. Praise be to me for all the great things I have done. <laughs> and uh, Yahweh says, no, you're, you're about to get punished. I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. Woe be unto you. It's only by God's power and God's wisdom that you can do anything of eternal value. Anyway, you're going to try to make that claim? Good luck. Good luck. And you think uh, 
I've done this, I've done this, I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of the peoples, I plundered the treasuries, I, like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. Well, aren't I great? Okay? My hand reached to the ostrich, all these things, to the riches of the people I can nest. We get to verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? It will be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. You arrogant king, you're confusing the tool with the one that's using the tool. God's using the tool. God gets the glory. God has done these things. It's God's wisdom. It's God's power. And if you're a tool in God's hand, praise God. Don't praise yourself. Don't boast in your wisdom or your strength. It's God. So I appreciate that. Uh, Jeremiah ten twelve. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens. Again, Jesus Christ is the agent of God the Father's creative plan. Daniel 2, 20 and 23. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to get saved in this lesson, but Daniel is still testifying to, uh, to the glory of God. It is He who changes times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. So we can relax about who's in the White House. God's in charge. Okay? And let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. So the wisdom and power belong to God, but then he bestows it on Daniel. He bestows it on us. He bestows it on those that are living their lives in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to have to close with this. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Physically, when Paul arrived at Corinth, he was not at the top of his game. <laughs> okay? His team was scattered. He had been laughed out of Athens at the, the Sermon on Mars Hill. Um, he was uh, running out of money. He, he comes crawling into Corinth. He has to find some tent making to do to raise some funds. He was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Physically speaking was not a highlight of Paul's ministry. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. The real power when our body is weak. When I am weak, then I am strong. I think we understand this. So that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. That's a nice passage too. Just gives us that tandem of wisdom and power. All right. Well, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for uh, this whole series, Father, that we've been in now for some time. Um, Father, we've got three more weeks to go, and then this series gets put on hold for a year, but that's, uh, that's in your plan too, Father. So we just thank you and praise you uh, for all that you bestow. Might we be humble to receive the word, uh, not just receive it as information, but to receive the word implanted. Might it dwell richly within each one of us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.